Had to open up this LaCroix. Now we're ready. This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. My name is Paul Jaisley. I'm your host for this week's episode, filling in for the uncanny Mike Rappin, who I believe is on another one of his swashbuckling space pirate adventures. I'm not sure. He'll tell you all about it when he gets back next week. But I'm joined by two of my favorite people to talk about comic books with, Kara Shamborski. Hey. And Nick White. Hi. We're all here, and we all have the same question that needs to be answered. How are you doing how have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kara. Hello. Uh, I'm doing well in that I had a fabulous Disney World adventure last weekend Ooh. That, <laughs> that I enjoyed immensely. And I also had a day in Universal. And as anyone who's spent more than three seconds with me knows, I love Harry Potter. So obviously <laughs> went to the Harry Potter section of the Universal Parks and went into Ollivander's and for once was chosen to be the person who gets a magic wand and I basically freaked out and if if you just like imagine a child like meeting Santa Claus for the first time kind of situation like face aglow mm. like so hyped so excited that was me I was literally like <laughs> bouncing on my toes and like if my face could split from grinning it would have and I was like I've been waiting for this moment since I was 11 it was super emotional <laughs> for me so well, that's fantastic yeah it was yeah. great I'm doing well uh in terms Should we tell of, Kara that we planned that like we 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 paid that guy off like weeks ago right. <laughs> listen Kara's gonna come in it's gonna get real dark if you don't let her get the wand okay <laughs> right it turns out we learned the real magic is money yeah things happen. Right. oh no that's terrible <laughs> oh, I think man. that's what Harry Potter is all about. It's just unrelegated capitalism. That's just it's <laughs> the whole lesson there to be had. Anyway, go ahead, Kara. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. Uh, in terms of of comics that I read this week, I actually okay. So I have this terrible habit where I buy comics and books and then don't read them for years. Like, yeah, that's everyone. It, it's, right. So yeah. I decided to dig into the pile of books that I bought uh, literally like four or five years ago <laughs> to see what was in there. And I have a bunch of comics from India that I got at New York Comic Con a few years ago. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So I decided to, to dig into those a little bit. Um, I read some of uh, Regional Folk Tales of India, which is a collection published by Amar Chit Chitra Katha, and I apologize if I mispronounced that. But it's this uh, it's this big Indian comics publisher that's been around since uh, 1967. And they, uh, they specialize in comic book interpretations of uh, classic Indian stories uh epics and mythology some of their fables some of like biographies of past leaders and things like that so definitely with a with an aim to instruct and educate the youth of india about their heritage in a child-friendly format and <laughs> it is like the art is definitely very like 
60s. <laughs> it is, oh, okay. This okay. is this is <laughs> this is not a sophisticated book, but I don't think it needs to be with what it's trying yeah. to do. Um but an an interesting th- thing to me because I uh I have only spent like a few days in India and I'm not super super familiar with the culture is that a lot of most of the the human characters in these stories are colored as like pretty white and like I know that in lots of areas of of Southeast Asia uh paler skin is considered more attractive but I think I was surprised to see that so prevalent in a child's comic book which like I'm not entirely sure what decade the stories collected in this edition from 2012 are but mm-hmm. it was still like I don't know, like the area I live in now is predominantly Southeast Asian population. So I'm looking at this book saying, this does not reflect the demographics surrounding me here. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. If you're saying the art looks a little bit dated, it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that maybe some of the, uh, some of the cultural aspects are dated as well in the collection. I mean, we right. here in Western society right. yeah. have made Jesus pale as hell for years. So, I mean, what, <laughs> right. that, I mean, yes, that's true. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think we've seen this before maybe. So, yeah. So, are these more is it like a traditional comic book or is it more like a, a story a picture book i guess uh, it's I'm curious. definitely a comic book so okay. so these okay. collections cool. are they say f- five in one so it's like five stories per book and uh so i was reading this like folk tales collection of different different heroes and like you know teaching morals of be a good person and uh pray to the gods and everything will be fine kind of things but sure. like very kind of instructional traditional folktale things that you would see in any culture but definitely in comic book form definitely late 60s aesthetic with, yeah, again yeah. maybe not the highest production value but uh <laughs> but you know pretty well done in terms of telling these stories like they're they're well they're well told stories and uh i have a second collection from this same publisher called great rulers of India that I'm definitely looking forward to reading after I finish up the folk tales. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I, I like the idea that, you know, someone thought to use the comic book medium as a way, as an instructional sort of device, you know, to teach these stories, to pass them down. That's, that's great. Especially, uh, you know, across all cultures, it's heartwarming. I mean, it seems like over here we only have chick tracks, and that's not exactly the most <laughs> fun uh, r- religious instructional comic book uh, uh, content you can find. So, yeah. Although, anytime I find a chick track in the wild, dude, I, I just found un- like two in the last unreasonably year. excited. Wait, what are you talking uh, you- about? What is this thing oh, you're talking about? Oh, Kara, these are fantastic. What What is this thing? They're these little, um, like, pocket-sized comic strips. You know, um, that are done by this guy named Jack Chick and a group of other artists. But it's part of like a sort of uh, very conservative Christian ministry that he has. So all of the books are about 
basically someone not accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior and then going to hell, unless at the very last second on their deathbed, they do accept it and then they go to heaven. That's basically the plot of every chick track. Whoa. But they publish like hundreds of them and people will like leave them at bus stops or, you know, in train stations and just as a way of proselytizing. Um, so I, when, when I find one in the wild, they get very excited. I, I'm not sure why. There's this weird yeah. like sort of uh, outsider art type collector's item that I, yeah. I found They're both great. of mine at libraries, so I mean, you know. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite one is the one where the girl uh, is playing a version of Dungeons and Dragons and um, <laughs> her character loses and she tr- she her friend or her friend's character loses the game, so she commits suicide and then like the girl's going to do the same thing, but one of her friends intervenes and says, "No, you have to accept you can't do witchcraft like this. You have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior." And then she does and it's a happy ending. So that's that's the best one in my opinion. <laughs> What would this creator <laughs> say if he was watching the current season of Riverdale, I wonder? <laughs> I, I'm sure he has some, uh, if he was still with us, he would have some uh, some uh, not complimentary thoughts. Um, oh, anyway, anyway, yeah, check out Jack Chick Tracks if you find him lying around. That's, I guess, the only way you can find him is at the bus stop or the library. Chances oh. are you've probably found one by this point. You just had no idea what, what the heck it was. <laughs> Yeah, you probably Incredible. just looked it over or, or picked it up and threw it away like the trash it is. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> anyway, it's a whole other topic. Uh, Nick, what did you read this week? Please tell us. Uh, yeah, things have things have been going pretty well. As Paul and I talked about before the show, uh, last night we celebrated Mike Rappin's birthday party in Granville, um, a, a restaurant called Florentines, and they had trivia afterwards after dinner. And of course, it was fairly geek-based, from a category called Mario, Wario, or both, uh, to <laughs> tabletop games, to obscure 1980s music, to guess this song, which we've now put into Mario Paint, and you have to uh, <laughs> interpret the cover. So um, <laughs> I'll just slide this in here. We're not going to brag, but Paul and I, uh, our team did win, so um, <laughs> yes, we were very well uh, pleased about that. Um, to be fair and to give full credit to everyone else, uh, let's see, uh, Xander and Jordan and Kate, K-A-T-E, Kate, were also on the team and there was a three-way tie for second. So it was pretty competitive and very close in that regard. Um, in terms of what I read, uh, I did read Dry County, a Lou Rossi novel, uh, words, pencils, colors, all by Rich Tommaso who some of you might know for doing Dark Corridor a few years ago at Image, as well as Spy Seal. Uh, I think that's his most recent work leading up to this. And then, of course, uh, She-Wolf Parts 1 and 2. I've only read Dark Corridor, Spy Seal. I It's not going to happen. I'm just going to have to just relinquish <laughs> my hopes. But it's published in this weird, oversized child storybook size. But it's also paperback, so it's like... I need something that's either stronger in terms of binding or smaller to fit on my shelf. Um, but yeah, I don't know were the were the actual individual issues published traditional comic book size. I think they were. I so think maybe they you could were. track down the back issues. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's what yeah. I'm. Gonna I have really to enjoyed do. Spice Seal. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I think it's worth picking up, regardless of the uh, odd dimensions. But that's right. just me. Yeah. Um, so with. Uh, Dry County, which Paul has read so he knows. Um, it's a work that follows this guy called Lou Rossi. He's a young 20-something cartoonist slash basically professional slacker. 
Um, he lives in Miami around 1980 to 1990, um, except unlike a lot of period works, this one doesn't really pepper it with a lot of chronological sort of like timestamps. So I had to Google the B-52 <laughs> album that they mentioned at one point <laughs> to figure it out. Um but um, Lou Rossi, I guess, is somewhat relatable. Uh, I, I can get behind this because uh, he's not really there to enjoy the nightlife. He doesn't. He's not really there to go out and get some sun and everything. He, the book, I mean, freaking kicks off with him talking about how much he hates the club lifestyle going on in Miami, and the whole book just begins with him going off and spending his Friday night at the laundromat, uh, which uh, that's. Basically, uh, my typical Friday night in college, if you swap out him meeting a woman of mystery named Janet with me furiously highlighting my book on Native American history um, while the washing, with only the sound of the washing machines to keep me company. Um, mm. Freshman fall was tough for me, guys. Can you tell? Uh, <laughs> but, of course, he meets this woman, and they hit it off, and they agree to meet up again, and they go on a date, but then Janet disappears. And the rest of the book is largely about him. Um, he, of course, has left a note that says, if you get the cops involved, you know, I'll kill her. And so he goes off trying to solve this case on his own. And it turns into something not unlike a lot of these uh, amateur gumshoe, amateur PI sort of indie uh, slice of life kind of narratives that we've been fed I feel like pretty frequently lately. So like bored to death with um, Jason Schwartzman and Ted Danson, the show on gosh, I think it was like stars. Um, it also kind of felt like any of the sort of like um, search party on TBS it reminded me of that. And just sort of a lot of the Wes Anderson stuff where the, the, you have this guy who has this exaggerated sense of self-importance and he thinks that maybe there's some massive conspiracy going on or whatever. And really it's just, nothing it's like borderline nothing um <laughs> but as paul and i talked about like this book suffers from some weird tone issues honestly um like it it feels like what i was just describing until towards the end when it gets like really serious and super dark and kind of gritty and you're like is like what what happened to this sort of carefree guy who's just driving around florida you know just looking around and trying to get clues or whatever he thinks the his idea of clues are i don't know um <laughs> yeah i was reading this month to month when it came out and i feel like it's a book i need to revisit because reading it in one go might solve some of those issues for me i just will buy anything by rich tomasi just because i love his artwork so much so i'm willing to put up with some sort of uh some tonal or strange narrative issues from him yeah and i, I think ultimately this book is way more about sort of the feeling it evokes and the tone it evokes way more than than plot like it just it's hard to enunciate but it just feels very 90s to me um i don't know uh i also read hellboy the wolves of saint augustus this is written by mike mignola drawn by mike mignola colors are by james sinclair um it should be mentioned that it originally was not in color it was originally black and white and published in dark horse presents 88 to 91 that would be august to november of 94 oh wow it was originally in black and white which i didn't actually know hellboy was originally a black and white um piece was that news to either of you i had i had no clue i'm oh, sorry no i i read 
Hellboy as collected editions much late, like later after they were published. So I just kind of always assumed they were in color. Yeah, I think a lot of that Dark Horse stuff. I think a lot of that Dark Horse stuff wasn't black and white because I actually remember reading Dark Horse Presents when I was younger. I don't know if I read these specific issues because I don't remember much Hellboy, but they're all in black and white. All those issues. Yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed that as well with a lot of my Aliens comics. They've all been, like, digitally recolored, and it was only after I did some digging that I found out that they weren't originally that way. So, (laughs) yeah, um, the collected edition added uh, an extra eight pages and then colorized it. Uh, It's your pretty basic Hellboy narrative. You have this traveling monk back in, like, the 14th century who arrives in a little Eastern European town called St. August, uh, and he goes to compliment the royalty there on their dope-ass bell tower, because I guess back in that time, like, having a dope-ass bell tower was, like, that was the thing you wanted to have, I guess, Um, only to discover that they're worshipping an old fertility god. So, I mean, lesson learned. You have a dope-ass bell tower, people are going to come check it out. When they come check it out... Don't be worshiping Satan. Like, um, <laughs> pro tip. Yeah, I mean, he he points out that the narrator says it it was the the Antichrist, but later text would say it was probably a fertility god, whatever. Um, and so the priest doesn't handle this too well, and he curses the royal family to change into werewolves every seven years, where they then massacre everyone in the town. Uh, and so in modern day, Hellboy is sort of trying to look after, look out for this um, priest he met back in the 60s who was supposed to be visiting the city and checking in with their new church or whatever, and he's gone missing. And of course, this is the, you know, the year seven of whatever cycle, and so there's a wolf going around and killing everyone, and uh, um, turns out the town changed their name because they were worried that the uh, Inquisition was going to come through and wipe them out once they heard about the whole werewolf problem so uh yeah it's it's just good old hellboy i'm really i'm really just enjoying a lot of the stuff it's super serialized and it's just really rare to get mike mignola pencils like mike mignola covers you can you can get mike mignola covers for days but to actually get mike mignola drawing page after page after page um that's just a rarity these days so Yeah, it's always nice to kind of revisit that stuff he did because he's such a fantastic stylist. I think he's a very good storyteller too, so I think him doing interiors is always a nice nice treat. Yeah, I think his his writing is actually really underrated, honestly. I think it's it's unfortunate, but he's actually really really good and I feel like his research that he does in terms of like um apocryphal texts and, you know, more out there aspects of, of religion and, and, and Christianity that a lot of people don't know about. I feel like he's actually done a lot of his research on that. So um, props to Mike Mignola. Yeah, reading the earlier Hellboy books, right? Like reading the earlier yeah. Hellboy books for me always feels like I'm learning all these secrets of the dark underbelly of the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. No, it really does. Like, it's like, I, I really want to know where he was going to to do all of his research because obviously this is like 93, 94. So this, this guy doesn't have Wikipedia. He's like using an encyclopedia or something, which I mean, I don't know how anyone did research back then. I would just look at the size of that book and be like, you know what? Let's just let this be a mystery for the world to <laughs> never, we'll n- and we'll never know. And then the guy's like, yeah, the book's right there. You could could look it up. No. No. You have to go to the library, and then you have that that weird, like, file card system. Then they make you put on the gloves. Yeah, yeah. So it's too much work. So I'm glad he was doing the work and not me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. What what about you, Paul? 
Well, uh, I've been pretty good. I've actually been trying to sit down and read uh, a bunch of stuff as much as I can when I have my free time. Um, I read Captain Marvel in Pursuit of Flight. This is the first volume of Kelly Sue DeConnick's uh, take on Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. Um, art by Dexter Soy and Emma Rios is a couple issues in this collection. I watched the Captain Marvel trailer and realized I knew nothing about the character other than the name. So I figured I might as well start with the run that seems to be the basis for the movie version of Carol Danvers, and that's this. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't expect it to be a sort of time-traveling adventure, but I'm kind of glad I was surprised by that. It felt like a a book that was just exploring Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers' motivation to do what she does. I think that's the best introduction to a character, just to see them in a situation and figure the way out of it. And it made me really excited to see the movie. So I'm glad I picked it up, and I've already got the second volume of Kelly Sue DeConnick's run ready to go, and I'll start reading that soon. Um, I will say, though, I it took me a while to get Dexter Soy's artwork. It was so jarring at first because it's so different from the cover aesthetic from these collections and from these issues. Um, it almost turned me off completely, but I'm glad I stuck with it because it kind of grew on me. And then the last two issues in this collection are drawn by Emma Rios, and they're absolutely lovely because, of course, they are. So have either either of you guys read this stuff? It, it's it been a while, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. I haven't read any of the yeah. new iteration. I, I remember like reading the first two volumes that where Kelly Sue DeConnick was reintroducing the character with an amped up name and the new costume that Jamie McKelvey drew. And I mm-hmm. just remember being so swept away by that story because it was... Uh, to me, it felt like a, a rare moment where a, a female superhero is allowed to be a person and not just a figurehead, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Because it's such like a personal story. It's not her like defending the Earth from an invading force. It's basically her, you know, traveling through time trying to find her way back. It's such a, like a small personal story. It's a really nice introduction to that type of character, I thought. Yeah. So I, I really hope they do keep that with her character. Uh, I was I was actually talking about that trailer that you mentioned for the Captain Marvel movie with one of my nerdier coworkers. And he pointed out that there are really no spoken lines by Captain Marvel in the trailer. It's just dudes talking about her. So that is not the best first impression. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm hoping that that was just the trailer and not the film. Yeah. I, I definitely have learned to take trailers, especially for Marvel movies or any big action movie with a giant grain of salt. Cause there's usually not the best representation of what the movie is going to be, especially if you know, you're going to get a couple more trailers before the movie comes out. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also took time to read Wonder Woman Earth One Volume Two. This is the second volume in the Wonder Woman Earth One collection. You know these Earth One graphic novels that DC does, which are sort of these continuity-free origin stories of their big characters. This one was written by Grant Morrison with art by Yannick Paquette. I remember reading the first volume of this and being pretty underwhelmed. It felt like a very, you know, by the books, by the numbers. Wonder Woman origin story. Um, Yannick Paquette's artwork was lovely, of course, but it just it didn't feel like a Grant Morrison comic to me, which might work for some people, but <laughs> that's not what I expected. Um, and then um, I just I just felt so flat to me. So I actually wasn't. I was totally f- forgot that this was coming out. I saw it on uh, on Hoopla, of course, so I checked it out, and I actually really liked the second volume because it actually felt like a Grant Morrison comic, which again, your mileage may vary if that's a good thing or not. Uh-huh. But 
this is where Xander needs to cut in with a sort of like uh, the editorial, you know, caption box that says, Editor's note, for more of Kara and Paul's thoughts on Grant Morrison, check out IRCB Minisode number 18. You know, your editor. Um, yeah. Go on, Paul. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> no, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I felt like, I wonder when Morrison actually wrote this or if he went through a couple of rewrites before it came out because it's such a commentary on our current political climate. Um, the book opens with a uh, female Nazi agent invading uh, the Amazon island, and then it turns out she's kind of like a sleeper cell. She submits to uh, the the queen of um, Paradise Island, and then later on in the book, she's sort of awakened as a sleeper cell agent. So it deals with you know the the return of like neo um, neo Nazism or white nationalism. Wonder Woman, uh, the main part of the book, she's leading uh, a women's equality march. Um, she's a, a keynote speaker for it, and her main um, antagonist in the book is Dr. Psycho, who Morrison writes as a sort of men's rights activist pickup artist. Who, oh, God. and then Yannick Paquette, Yannick Paquette draws kind of like Nick Cave. It's very strange, <laughs> but it kind of it kind of worked because it's so like creepy, you know, as a villain. And what's interesting is that when Morrison did the first volume of this, he mentioned he wanted to go back to the sort of, of course, he wanted to go back to the weird like, you know psychosexual elements that are there in the early iterations of wonder woman with you know, the being tied up. It, yeah. You know, yeah. and, um, but it's not, he plays this idea of submission, but it's never a sort of sexual thing in this book. It's the idea of submitting to love like the Amazons do or submitting to authority like the world of men does. And you basically have Max Lord leading this sort of agency to develop weapons to invade paradise Island and this contrast between Wonder Woman trying to teach the world to accept love and the government or the military or the world of man not being able to accept that, they only see submission to authority as the, the only way to to survive. So it's an interesting idea, and I think he does a, a, a nuanced take on that. Some of the political stuff is a little ham-fisted and heavy-handed, but I think overall it's it's a pretty enjoyable take on the character, and I'm kind of surprised based on how much I didn't like the first volume. So... I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what anybody else thinks about this because, again, it's it's Morrison writing Wonder Woman, which I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. I'll leave it at that. I did not care for <laughs> the first volume, and yeah, you know my issues with Grant Morrison, but mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, at, at following your review, I will give this one a try. If you yeah, think that yeah. it was such a shift between volumes one and two, I might like it more. I might hate it more, but. The only way I'll know is if I actually read it. Yeah, I, I, I actually would be very curious to hear your thoughts, Kara, because I think it's such a diversion from the first. And I think Morrison actually handles some some controversial or contemporary issues pretty, pretty well. So more than I expected him to do. Okay. So. All right. So that's what we that's what we read recently. So let's look to the future, the near future. This coming Wednesday, October 17th, there'll be comic books in your local shop. Some of them we're excited about. Uh, Kara, what book are you looking forward to this week? Okay, so actually it didn't have a Wednesday release. It had a Saturday release, so it's already okay. out. But it is called King of the Comics, 100 Years of King Features. And it is a collection of some of the like more iconic King Features Syndicate properties like Crazy Cat, Popeye... Mm-hmm. Flash Gordon, Beetle Bailey, Blondie, Prince Valiant, Hager the Horrible, like all of these 
Like if you had comics in your newspapers growing up or anything like that, these are the comics that you were most likely reading. So Mm -hmm. to see it collected in an anthology that celebrates 100 years of this company being existence is a pretty cool idea. And I would love to see the overview of all their properties because I knew like bits and pieces of what uh, intellectual properties they had control over but seeing everything kind of in one spot I find is always an interesting exercise for any publisher let alone one that's been doing their thing for a hundred years yeah that's really interesting I I, you know looking back I think about reading the Sunday comics and just how formative of an experience that was for me like that's how I learned to read comics really before I read comic books was like the 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 Sunday funnies in the in the newspaper and I have a lot of fond feelings for a lot of those. I mean, even dumb things like Beetle Bailey and Hager the Horrible, I still will go out of my way to read if I have a newspaper lying around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? So I have such a fondness for that stuff. So, and those are those, do they do also do Prince Valiant or those yep. weird comics that seem to be so serialized that you'd never be able to catch up on this story? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Prince Valiant yeah. is on here for sure. <laughs> the Phantom. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's cool. Yeah. I had no idea that was coming out. I'm going to have to uh, track that down. Right. If you like a lot of that stuff, Kara, I would definitely recommend checking out, um, if you haven't already, any of the stuff that King has done as a collaboration with Dynamite. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. the really? recent Flash Gordon with Jeff Parker and Doc mm-hmm. Shaner. Oh, my God. It is so good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's right. fantastic. Yeah, that- that's great stuff. King's Watch in the first volume of uh, Flash Gordon. It's fantastic. Yeah? Yep. Oh, yeah. In my library. They've even <laughs> basically mashed all of those different worlds together now. So um, who's the magician? I can't remember. Who's the magician? Mandrake? Ma- Mandrake the magician. Mandrake. And the Phantom yeah. and Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon. They all team up as sort of a mashup between all the different books. It's really cool. Hmm. Excellent. Well, uh, Nick, what are you excited about this coming week? Well, for me, it would have to be Gideon Falls number seven, written by Jeff Lemire, uh, art by Andrea Sorrentino, and colors by Dave Stewart. Yes, Gideon Falls is back, and yes, by back, I mean it was gone for one month, and no, I didn't throw a fit in September when it came out. I was very calm. I didn't get upset. Um despite what you might have heard. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I suppose it's only fitting that this book comes back in October. Uh, And for those trade waiting this book, uh, the the trade will drop on Wednesday, the very first day that this uh, show comes out. So if you're interested, that would be the time to snatch it up, especially as it is going to be $9.99. And for those who sort of pay attention to image, you've probably noticed that they've slowly moved away from that $9.99 introductory volume price with certain books. So I'm here to tell you I've done the research uh, because I didn't have to go to a library to do it. Uh, and I can tell you that volume one will be $9.99. Um, okay. <laughs> as for the future... Uh, and in terms of issue seven, uh, the AV Club has stated that apparently it's going to, quote, look backwards and uh, explore where the all of these characters came from. The pasts of Norton and Fred are both explored in greater depth. And so is the town, the past of the town, Gideon Falls itself. Um, so normally I'd be like, oh boy, time for that obligatory and ultimately inevitable prologue arc. Here we go. Uh, but these characters are very genuinely mysterious. Uh, and I am kind of... Uh, up for a little bit of pumping the brakes, especially after issue six got very, very Black Lodge-ish. So if you follow Twin Peaks, you'll know that that means 
things got fucking insane. So I'm <laughs> I'm okay with things getting a little less trippy because holy shit, uh, Andrea Sorrentino is so great at just drawing pages that just disorient you, and you're like, what is going on? So. I'm I'm hmm. just super pumped for this, and I would definitely say go pick up the trade, Paul, when whenever you get the chance. So yeah, I'll have to. I'm always a little suspicious when people drop the Twin Peaks reference. Uh, that's comparison. That's totally you know? okay. I think unfortunately it sort of gets dropped so much now that its currency yeah. isn't quite a. Uh, yeah, I I get you. Yeah, and the, yeah, yeah, but I'm curious about this. I think. Yeah, I'll have to give it a shot. So hey, is, thanks for giving yeah. me a heads up on that trade. Hey, is this yeah. book kind of weird? It's Twin Peaks. It's like, come <laughs> hey, on, exactly. fucking yeah. go. <laughs> Become a shorthand for just being, you know, oh, it's a little strange. Like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a whole other discussion. There's a whole other discussion to yeah. be had about Twin Peaks yeah. and why it's brilliant, which hopefully happens soon. Yeah, but not exactly. now. So. Um, well, speaking for myself, I'm excited for the second issue of MCMLXXV which again is Roman numerals for 1975, which is much easier to say. So I'll just call it 1975. Um, This is the new image book by Joe Casey uh, with art by Ian McEwen. I love the first issue of this book so much. Um, I don't know how to describe it other than just giving you the elevator pitch of it's a New York cab driver in the year 1975. She has an enchanted tire iron and she uses it to fight mythical beings and monsters and ninjas. What else do you need to know? Sold. It's a perfect comic book. I'm looking it up um, right now. It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think I talked about the first issue a couple episodes ago, but you know, I just like the way that McEwen's artwork captures probably not the what New York was actually like in the 70s, but the New York of the Warriors or even, you know, Escape from New York, like that really gritty version of New York you have in your head. Sure. And there there are a lot of visual references to the movie The Warriors in the first issue. So it's kind of like a supernatural take on that. Um, and again, I, I, McEwen's art is so fantastic. There are so many cool things he does. These big full page like fight sequences that go on in that first issue. And he does some really cool stuff with sound effects, which we'll talk about later in this episode. But I, I think visually it's a very striking book. And in terms of the content, again, mythical uh, enchanted tire iron, monsters, ninjas, 70s New York, the warriors, checks all your if you're doing bingo on things i like you just you just won so (laughs) bang pow boof zonk we all know these words they're part of the comic book vocabulary correct they're sound effects onomatopoeias that the artist will draw in a comic book to indicate some sound that we're supposed to quote-unquote hear. But even though it's a part of comic books and have been a part of comic books for decades, the way we experience them, I think, varies from reader to reader. And I think that's what I'm going to talk about here today is how do you actually read or quote-unquote hear sound effects in comics? And I'm glad we have this group of people to talk about it because we found out, Kara, you have a very, um, I think, unique take on sound effects. How do you read sound effects? I ignore them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so I, I want to apologize to all the writers and artists who put great thought into exactly how the sound is supposed to sound, but I do not notice sound effects. They're like white noise on the page. Uh, I like. I think uh, growing up, some of the more like uh, classic 
comics, like Silver Age comics, where the sound effects are a little more obvious. Uh, those I would have noticed a little bit more. And uh, it's just like modern comics. I remember, I think I was reading a DC book maybe like 10 years ago. And all of a sudden I realized that the jumble of color on a page that I was looking at was a sound effect. And it it was (laughs) like so stylized in how it was written and there were just so many consonants involved that just like looking at it (laughs) made me like my visceral reaction was no and my second one was why (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i I feel like with uh you know the the modern style of comic of comic book from the major publishers tends to be like slicker and glossier than in previous decades and I think that does translate to sound effects and to me it makes them like literal background noise like I do not go out of my way to read them I barely even notice them which is strange for me because and I think I've said this on this podcast before but I have to struggle to remember to look at the art in comics a lot of the time too (laughs) because for me it's faster to read the words so I'll read dialogue and like little internal monologue boxes all day long, but the art is like kind of sometimes an afterthought for me and sound mm-hmm. effects even more so, which like you'd think, oh, but it's written out. And Carrie, you just said you are going to read the written word first, but sound effects is like bottom priority when it comes to comic books for me. I just, <laughs> I do not notice them at all. So when you it's, were like, let's do this for a topic, I'm like, why? Who? Oh, right. Okay. I was like, what are those? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, one of the reasons I want to talk about this, because I noticed I had m- recent reading experiences where I missed a sound effect, and then the characters would like comment on it. Like, I think I was reading a Captain America comic, and you know there was like a gunshot sound effect, which I completely missed. And then the next panel... The character's like, oh, did you hear that? I'm like, hear what? And I had to like, go back and figure out what was happening. So to me, it's like it really interrupted the reading experience by missing that, especially if the characters are going to talk about it. But I do know there's examples of poorly done sound effects, which your eyes just like gloss over because it's either unnoticeable or not interesting. So I see it both ways. And Kara, I, I confess, sometimes I have to slow down and look at the art more than I do in comics. So you're not alone in that aspect. Oh, good. <laughs> but so in that regard, I kind of think of sound effects in the same way I think about lettering or coloring or word balloon placement. They're an element of comic books that are essential, I think. But if they're you only sort of notice them if they're done really poorly or really well, you know, you kind of gloss over them if they're just sort of there. So I don't know, Nick, do you have a different take on that? I think you sort of hit the nail on the head of where I was going, which is that it, it, it is something that really, when it catches your eye, it's almost never for a good reason. Like, yeah. um, there was an article I was reading um, at Slate, and they were interviewing a bunch of comic book uh, people about sort of creating sounds and everything. And uh, one of these people, uh, Lee Mars, who was a founder of Women's Comics, uh, said that um, visual cues must be indicative of sound quality. And she said that there are two basic indicators of this, which I found kind of interesting. Um, one, the louder the sound, the larger the word. I think we're all kind of familiar with that. Um, and then two, repetition of letters show duration. 
and I think these are all sort of canon uh, in terms of we've all implicitly adopted these ideas without question in terms of comics, but I think the problem is that a lot of times, boy oh boy do I hate it when it's just, it's this massive word and it's fucking huge and it's distorted. I can't even tell you what the words are. I can't even tell you what the letters are. You know what I mean? Like it's stretched and distorted. <laughs> I mean, it might be the biggest like kabam on the planet or whatever, but like I can't even read that it's kabam just because it's just so stretched or the coloring used on the letters just makes it fade into the background or things like that. And so <laughs> it just becomes this huge problem, honestly, and I, I don't like it. Um, there was another guy who was being interviewed about this, and I thought this was a really good point. Because they asked him what his favorite um, sound effect was in comics. Uh, his name is Ben Towel or Towley, uh, and he said it was Walt Simonson and John Workman's um, sound effects in their Thor run um, because yes. they really approached it as quote seamlessly and organically, uh, and the effects uh, lettering blends in with the other artwork, and you don't see this anymore because of digital artwork. Yeah, that's another thing I want to make sure we talk about because I've read some of that Thor stuff and it's the best use of sound effects I've seen because somehow Simonson and Workman were able to kind of integrate the art and the sound effects together where they're sort of inseparable. It's not like an art when the, the, someone slapped a sound effect on top of it. They're intertwined in this amazing way. you know. And Workman is such an amazing letterer that you can't miss the sound effects. They're so obvious. Um, it, it, it becomes part of the reading experience to read that stuff. And another example I thought of was Howard Chaikin's American Flag. I really love that book. I know Howard Chaikin is probably the definition of a problematic favorite. Sure. But um, his American Flag stuff, he uses sound effects almost excessively in that book to the point where the, actually the sound effects almost become the artwork itself. They're just like, there's certain pages where just overwhelmed with sound effects and it creates this sort of like chaotic, you know, in the middle of a firefight where the two sides are shooting at each other, it creates that chaotic effect. And it, the, you don't really see that these days with digital sound effects. One of my biggest pet peeves about The Walking Dead is that all of the gunshots look and sound the same. And it's all the same digital font for every single you know, gunshot effect. And it's t it really took me out of the comic when I first started reading Walk Walking Dead. It just felt like it wasn't a part of the book. It wasn't part of the artwork. It felt like slapped on. So I think that's a big problem for me too. And I think it boils down to just once again that there are all of these, I feel like we're finally getting to a point, we've talked about it before, how colorists are finally really being appreciated and, and, and acknowledged for the work that they're doing, but like letterers and flatters and, and whatnot, like all of these people are, are doing great jobs too. And when you, when you notice this shit in comics, it's because it's bad. So it just sort of makes you reflect on that and go, <laughs> you know, man, I, I guess I don't realize it when it's, when it's good and, and word art, I think that's what it's technically called when you have your letterer doing mm -hmm. word art, which is, yeah. yeah. Um, when it pops out, yeah, that's like jarring. I don't, I don't enjoy it. Um, if you have an, an amazing letterer, they're going to work with your artist to make everything blend together seamlessly to have a, a unified aesthetic. And when you don't have a unified aesthetic, boy, oh boy, it's like you feel like you can dissect and pick apart who did what between the letterer mm -hmm. and the artist. And it's like you don't need that. Like when you have a great team, you can't tell, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting as well is that that 
sound effect is kind of an interesting innovation when it comes to comics, where I think it's something that even people that don't read comics, that's one of the main things they associate with a comic book, the word balloon and the sound effect. Part of that is probably because of the, the you know, 1966 Batman TV show, which, you know, then the fight sequences, you'd have the big full screen sound effects like Biff and Pow when there'd be the fist fights, you know? Right. So I think that became part of what people think of when they think of comics. But like, again, you can have experience of reading comic where you, that they feel excessive or you don't notice them at all. And yet they serve such an important function, especially if people are going to be talking about hearing a sound. How do you portray that in a silent medium? I think sound effects are a really amazing innovation. But again, like, as has been saying, when they're, they're done, done poorly, they can be distracting or, or forgettable. Yeah, totally, totally. So, Nick, you have another point in your notes here that uh, was kind of interesting to me. You pointed out that actually the word balloon itself is probably the most basic sound effect, even though we don't think of it that way. It's supposed to represent human speech. Right. And you can see people play with the shape of the word balloon or the shape of the text to indicate certain types of speech. And I don't know about you guys, but I find myself trying to read those voices in my head differently than other voices. Do you have that same experience or am I just a weirdo? No, I, I, I think you're completely on. I think that is, it is one of the things you don't think about because when you just think about sound effects and comics, it's, it's a gun firing or a car crash or an explosion. You know, those are the things we associate, you know, these bombastic ideas. And so just the idea that we're using comics to change, modify, or evoke, or bring about something within someone's tone of voice. Like, naturally, that just, it doesn't come to mind, because it's just such a, it's such a small thing, and we don't think of, you know, sound effects and the human voice as being, we think of them as sort of separate. So, when you have, like, a, um, a speech bubble, you know, with the little icy tendrils on it, so you know that it's someone who's, like, cold or pissed off or angry, or when you have those sort of pointed, um, jagged edges that make it sound like it's a voice coming from a telephone or a or a, a, mm-hmm. a computer, you know, things like that. We don't think about that, but those are those are basically sound effects too. And I, I think they're helpful. I think they're effective. And I think the bigger thing is that they're seamless. You don't stop to think about those things. You know, there's a one to one translation right. in your head of, okay, this is a robotic voice or whatever. And so the biggest thing, of course, is just that the pacing of the comic book is unimpeded. And I think that's always what's so important, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. This actually makes me think about how speech and thoughts are portrayed in a lot of manga comic books. Interesting, uh, okay. And my my ultimate frame of reference for manga continues to be Sailor Moon, so I apologize to people like <laughs> Renee who actually like know more about this than I do. But so for example, in the Sailor Moon manga, you'd have a character uh could be saying something with the aid of a speech bubble, but then also there would be like these tiny, tiny asides in some panels where it's like this tiny little text that's kind of like near enough to the speech bubble that it could be the character's thoughts or it could be them like mumbling or they could be saying it also, but it's not totally relevant to moving the story along. So it's not part of the speech bubble. And yeah. the f- the fluidity of that interpretation of that like little textual aside it was always so interesting to me because like I felt like I was getting more insight into the characters into the world building without it necessarily being like like this character is saying this out loud right now. 
So mm-hmm. like it would be like there would be like talking about something relevant to the overall conversation, but like they'd be eating lunch at someone's house and so the character talking would have like this little piece of text saying like oh, I love ramen. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> is she is she saying that? Is she thinking it? Is it part of her dialogue? And it's just like it doesn't it's it's open to your interpretation and I did like that. Yeah, and it's interesting when you're describing it it seems strange, but I'm sure when you're actually reading the book, it seems intuitive that that's what's going on. It doesn't really, you're not questioning what's happening. It's just sort of there in the text and it makes sense to you, right? Yeah. At, at least me yeah. as a 14 year old reader reading them for the first time made <laughs> absolute perfect sure. sense. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's a big thing. Like for me, is the idea that the reading experience of a comic, like Nick was saying, seem, needs to be like sort of fluid and unimpeded. And I think well done sound effects are a part of that although sometimes if it's a really cool looking sound effect or one that seems like it might be really fun to say out loud i'll stop and like re- make sure i read it with a lot of emphasis either in my head or out loud you know i can't resist if i'm reading a thor comic and there's a real big crack of doom like you kind of have to say that out loud <laughs> to get the full effect you know of it um or at the same time, I really like it when there's an innovation with it. Like, I think it was Frank Quitely in his uh, Batman and Robin run with Morrison, where there's a couple instances where he would actually just include the sound effect in the art itself. Oh, that makes so sense. Cool. Where, like, yeah. a car would be, like, skidding out of control, and the smoke coming off the tire would spell out the word screech. You know, it wasn't, like, a separate sound effect. It was seamless part of the art. And actually... As I mentioned, Ian McEwen does that in the first issue of 1975. So it's cool to kind of see that stuff happen because it's so rare. And it really makes you appreciate the thought that the artist put into making that sort of a seamless part of the artwork. I think we saw a bunch of that in Manipul and I'm going to get this wrong. Manipul and was it Bucciolato's Flash from the New 52? Yeah, that's right. They did that as well. They did yeah. a lot of really creative, super cool um, sort of word art stuff. So. so that's the example of the other way where a sound effect is done so interestingly that you it does take you out of the comic, but it's not a negative thing. You're sort of like thinking like, wow, that's something cool that comics can do that no other art form can do. You know what I mean? You kind of appreciate it rather than the other thing we talk about where it's like it's distracting and takes you out of the book. Yeah, it's it's interesting that we've created this whole shorthand of canon for these things. And that's one of the things I came across in one of the articles I read is that we've you just sort of observe and unquestioningly uh, take in that, you know, okay, so Thwip is, is Spider-Man and Snicked is Wolverine. And if you have six, mm-hmm. ha, 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 that's the Joker. So even <laughs> though a lot of these things just intuitively may or may not sound like what we would think they sound like, we've just now established this this shorthand, which now is way more effective than anything else, you know what I mean? Because there's a one-to-one correlation there where you hear this and or you see this on the page and you're like, well, you know, if I distanced this idea from a comic book, I have no idea what this is, but because we're talking within the media of comic books, I know exactly what this means, you know? That's an interesting one. I, I like the idea that most sound effects kind of are essentially onomatopoeia. They're just spelled out on the page, you know, but in, in a specific text, you know, like a boom or pow. Uh, but something like snicked, I don't think I've ever heard that sound in real life, but yet I know what it sounds like in my head, right? Sort of this metallic sort of quick snap mechanical sound. And I know that's Wolverine's claws. And do you have... Well, you know what it sounds like now. <laughs> oh, that's true. You know that's what it true. sounds like now that they've made X-Men films. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd have to go back and rewatch that. I wonder if it matches up with what I thought before. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm curious to see. I, now you've made me think about that, Carol. Like, maybe... Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe the snicked in the movies is not the snicked in my head. You're actually so. reminding oh, no. me. There's there's a cover. I, I don't know what series, but it's Wolverine. And it's just he's filling the whole frame. And he's got his claws out on one hand. And he's saying, snicked, bub. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen <laughs> just, this. That's great. So it's yeah, like, is that's great. did he say snicked? Does he say snicked? Was that just the sound effect? And he waited for the sound to go and it's, then said, bub? Like, it's just him. He's been saying it all these times. Like, the claws don't even make a sound. He just he just feels, you know, like he has to make this noise every time. Like the like, actors who do Star Wars and they go... Yeah, vroom, the lightsabers, pew, pew, pew. yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> you can't not do it. Yeah. Because that's what those things sound like, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um I don't know what does the whip sound like in your guys's head. Is it is is it like a whip cracking? Because that's kind of what I hear in my head when Spider Man goes to whip. More like a like I, I can't even like I hear it in my <laughs> yeah. head, but saying it out loud sounds dumb and is not the sound that I'm looking for. <laughs> okay, okay. Like it's just like a little I mean, th- like th- like the emphasis for me is on like the th, which kind of mutes the sound. Oh, and okay. it's like yeah. a little more of a muted like he's he's like flinging something but it's like that dull impact sound where it's just like th- yeah it's muted like catching yeah. a catching a frisbee i don't know if some reason that came into my head like maybe that's what it sounds <laughs> like i don't know but i think but that raises an interesting point i mean these are sounds that we've never probably heard in real life yeah we know what they sound like in our head and i think that's again a unique thing about comic books that you really literally cannot do in a movie or a TV show because you have to have the actual sound. So you can kind of have this experience of, of, of making up these sounds in your head. So I'm curious, Kara, are you going to take more notice of sound effects now? Are you going to try to sound them out, so to speak, in your head? Uh, I don't <laughs> want to commit to something that I'm not going to follow. <laughs> well, it, it really does depend. Like, as we've been having this conversation, I'm trying to think, like, okay, are there sound effects that I actually notice or sound effects that do add to the story for me and in sort of like magical or epic scenarios if there's some sort of this these are super specific images but these are the sound effects that came to my mind so if there's some sort of like space sucking void situation go on and there's like a an enormous sound effect in the background like that like I, i i get that that enormous elongated roar is supposed to be like everything being sucked into this void which like uh, clearly has happened enough in comics of various genres to <laughs> warrant its own sort of thing. And then uh, the other sound, yeah. which again, probably I picked this up mostly from Sailor Moon manga, but I think I've seen it other places too, is if there's some sort of like mm, magical or or just like a light rain, like some kind of something tiny part- particles are falling from the sky and it's just like a whoosh, like F W S H H H H H H H H. Okay. And like, yeah, 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 like yeah. again, it's like a weird, when you're sounding out, you're like, no, that's dumb. But in your head, you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's intuitive, those sounds in some way. Yeah. Uh, so what's, maybe we could just go around the horn then since you did that. Nick, do you have any like particularly favorite sound effects that uh, you want to share? Favorite or you like saying effects. out loud maybe? 
Um, like Clang from from Quantum and Woody is always a good one. You know, they always have to you know smack those two like big bracelets they have on their arms every twenty four hours, or they disintegrate. So it's always it's always big and bombastic and takes up a large amount of the page when they do a big splash page, and then you see two big Clang noises as they smack them together. So that's always something that I I always look for. You know, yeah, yeah, that's definitely a big one for me. I uh, I have a weird affinity for kind of like the the sloppier, wetter so- sound effects, like sploosh. That's always fun to see sure. on a page, like sploosh. <laughs> uh, I already mentioned cra- crack a doom is one of my favorites. Um, I love Bamf, even though I'm not a, the biggest X Men fan in the world. Anytime um, Nightcrawler shows up, you don't get a good Bamf. That's always yeah. fun to say. <laughs> it sounds kind of dirty for some reason. Or oh, <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, it's taken um, on new my, connotations now. I, yeah, there's an abbreviation maybe you can make uh, for yes. it. Or, uh, anyway. Um, um, one of my actually favorites is from an old Batman comic. Um, I think it's issue 425. Um, so this is like probably late 80s, early 90s Batman. Batman is tracking down a group of thugs in a um in like a junkyard where a bunch of like abandoned cars are. And he sneaks up on a guy who's having a cigarette and he pulls a the car battery out of the car engine and just chucks it at the guy as a way of taking him out instead of punching him. And the, 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 the battery hits the guy's stomach and it goes katunk, like yes. K-A dash T-U-N-K. And I'm like, that's exactly what it sounded like if you threw a car battery at someone's stomach. That, it would just go katunk. It's one of my favorites. Why would you know what that sounds like, Paul? But <laughs> well, well, now I do know what it sounds like thanks yeah. to Batman. You yeah. painted that visual picture very beautifully, Paul. Thank you. I can see it all happening. I can hear the katunk. Exactly. Yeah. See, you know what it sounds like when you get hit in the stomach with a car battery. It sounds like katunk. So, I guess uh, yeah, this is an interesting topic. I, I think, like I said, it's one of those things in comics that you only sort of notice when it's either done well or poorly. And I, I think after this conversation, I'm going to maybe make more of an effort to sort of notice how I engage with those, you know, and see how they interact with the artwork. So hopefully you do the same if you're reading comics after you're listening to this. And uh, if you have any favorite sound effects that you want to let us know, you can do that. Um, you can follow the show and us individually on Twitter. You can find me at Pauly, Nick at Death Star Plans, spelled funnily. You can find it. Yeah. Um, and Kara at Kara S. Zam. And, of course, the show at IRCB Podcast. Um, we're always retweeting stuff, and we have polls up there occasionally. I don't know what the poll for this week is because I don't know if there's one yet, but check it out. I'm sure it'll be up soon. In addition to that, you can go ahead and check out our Goodreads group. Uh, that's the I Read Comic Books Goodreads group. Just go ahead and Google it. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, we have weekly threads. We're always talking about what we've been reading and all sorts of things like that. It's a very engaging community. It's a very positive community. Uh, if you're looking for something like that, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. On top of that, you can also go to our website, ircbpodcast.com. Uh, we have a pronunciation guide for creator names, and we also now have a merch store. So if that's something Ooh. you're looking into in terms of stickers, in terms of t-shirts, uh, and everything else in between, uh, go check it out. You can leave us ratings and have subscriptions which will equal more listeners and better rankings for us so that would be really lovely if you could do that uh you can email us at ircb at destroy the that's destroy the cyborg with a dot before the org 
You can subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ircbpodcast for exclusive audio, early access, and cool stuff. Uh, Infinity Shred are, of course, the greatest band in the universe. We're lucky enough uh, to have them do the music for our show. Uh, Xander is a fun-sized Batman wizard. He also (laughs) happens to edit this show. I want to say thank you to both Kara and Nick for joining me. Thank you for Mike for letting me host this week. Thank you for you, most importantly, the listener, for tuning in and enjoying this podcast. Until next time, it's okay to not like a comic book, but it is not okay to make someone feel bad by liking it. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. That is the best sign-off, actually. Can we do that every show? (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised to see that there. I like that. No. No gatekeeping. No, exactly. That's the motto here. So to clarify, like in my head, I'm like, to clarify, <laughs> the reason this dog is pooping inside all the time is because that's how you've trained it. Like, no. Right. Anyway. Right. Well, it's kind of sad. Yeah. Phyllis is the exact opposite. She will actually, if we don't go for a long enough walk, she won't come back inside. She'll just stand on the front steps and not, oh. not come inside. Because oh. <laughs> she's like, that wasn't nearly long enough. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That I've like. You know, yesterday I was like, oh, this is great. This is like, I'm not feeling super hot. So this is my way to like, I have to go outside. I have to go outside to walk <laughs> this dog. And just, no, no. Wasn't into it. Got like around That's the corner and that was it. <laughs> well, so wait, how, remind me, how long have you had Phyllis now? Um, a little over three months. Oh. So, yeah. She figured out pretty quickly that she's going to be spoiled. <laughs> you know, unquestionably. So. Aw. Did you tell uh, Carol what you wanted to name that dog? Well, yeah, that was the deal, was that uh, (laughs) my girlfriend and I, she'd wanted a dog for a while, and I was on the fence about it. And I told her that we could only get a dog if we could name the dog Macho Dog Randy Savage. Oh, my God. And, (laughs) of course, we met Phyllis, and that was the name that her foster uh, parent, foster caretaker, whatever, had given her and it fit her so well we couldn't possibly change it. Aww. So yeah. That's so sweet. She's a Phyllis for sure. <laughs> so yeah, unfortunately it's not Macho Dog Randy Savage or the backup option was uh Rowdy Rowdy Pupper. <laughs> oh my maybe god. Maybe if we get another dog that could... <laughs> don't, don't those don't take those. Those are copyrighted. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs>